Hello and welcome to Michael and Mom Talk Cancer. Today we have an extremely special guest. We do. We have Rob Long from Uplifting Athletes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you both. Yes. Yes. You're a huge inspiration to us, Rob. We just want to say so thank you. Thank you for taking the time and being on the podcast with us. Okay. Michael and I talked about this because I like have printed all of the intros in the world and then we're like, you know what? Let's have him tell. Can you just like tell us your story and how you connected? Because it's not just you're the executive director, right? Yeah. Of uplifting athletes, but it's not yeah. just that. Like you have an entire reason and backstory and you're an athlete. Yeah. I'm yeah. saying you are an athlete. You also were <laughs> an athlete, like this close to being professional, yeah. and then something got in the way. But Tell us your story and thank you for being here. Yeah, I am thrilled. And I always um, try to take advantage of the opportunities to kind of share my story because I know I'm not unique in what I've gone through, but I know I am a, a little unique with the the platform that I've been afforded, um, especially when um, you know I was diagnosed. So my my kind of backstory is that I, I had an opportunity um, coming out of high school to play football at Syracuse University. I had uh, the unbelievable privilege of receiving a full scholarship to play football. It is the you're reason that so I... You're being so humble. <laughs> yeah, you're being humble. You're being so humble. He, he is the, so uh... humble. Yeah. It's the reason I, I went to Syracuse. I They gave me an opportunity. I went there. Um, I had an awesome career at Syracuse. And really, I, I got to to start as a true freshman. I played four years, and uh, heading into my senior year, I was pretty much I had the mindset that I just need to keep doing what I'm doing, and I'll I'll get to play in the NFL. And yeah. um, unfortunately, and sometimes fortunately, life doesn't always go as we plan. And right. five days after my last regular season game, I was uh, diagnosed uh, with a a rare and aggressive form of brain cancer. Uh, called anaplastic astrocytoma. And uh, at the time of my diagnosis, the doctors had had told my parents that I, I likely only would live another 36 months. Um, wow. And the five-year survival rate of my cancer uh, was 15%. Um, exactly the same as mine. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> the same as mine, which is crazy. Wow. That's a crazy nuts. coincidence. Wow. Yeah, and so um, my 22nd birthday, I was, I was sitting there and I had spent my 22nd birthday being prepped for brain surgery I had uh surgery <gasps> December 14th of 2010 um and then 6 days later I received the the pathology report back and that's when my world had been completely flipped upside down yeah and from there it was just um really trying to figure out how uh how to move forward and uh what was the best way to move forward and for me it was it was one day of a one day at a time and, and trying to get back to where I had left off. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to play football in the NFL at that time. That was, that was my, my drive and my desire. And uh, that is how I, I channeled all my focus and attention, you know, going through my diagnosis and my treatment, um, it was all with this end goal of, of getting back to playing football and, um, right. that, that mindset and that, that's something to look forward to, I think was incredibly powerful. And although the destination changed along the way, I, I feel like that, um, you know, the journey that I, I took was one that was um, incredible and in that I, I learned so much uh, about myself. I learned so much about... Um, Cancer does other, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Learned so much about other people and I can sit here you know, 12 and a half years later, and it was uh, probably one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. Um, and I've been able to live uh, a life ever since that has been incredibly fulfilling and has uh, changed, you know, kind of what I value and what my my goals are in life from when I was, you know, 21, 22 years old to, to where I am today. And I think my diagnosis forced me to uh, mature quite a bit um yeah. at a young age and um it gave me a lot of perspective that i think has really shaped who i have become and and the stuff that we have done um even now working with with uplifting athletes and so yeah it's been a it's been a wild ride and and i'm incredibly thankful for every step along the way how 
You said it was five days at the end after the end of your senior year football season. How did you make it through the season? Because you must. Yeah, you must have been so tired because I was exhausted I before I got diagnosed. So I can't imagine. What were your you, symptoms? Yeah. yeah like, what was it like? How did you get through the season? It's pretty wild to, to look back at. Um, yeah. At the time, my first symptoms looking back, our first game senior year was at the University of Washington. We played in Seattle. Uh, we flew from Syracuse to Seattle, uh, got off the flight, went to uh, the team dinner and almost immediately started feeling sick and spent the entire night uh, in the bathroom. I don't think I slept much. I was I was vomiting. I was sick. I had nausea. I was all these just didn't feel right. And it pretty much lasted up until, until game time the following day. I was sitting in the locker room just trying to kind of find some some balance and drinking a ton of uh, Pedialyte and, and yeah. fluids and just trying to kind of get myself prepared to play a football game and went out, played, had a great game. Um, we flew back home and- That uh, is the athlete mindset. That's all yeah. I'm going to say. <laughs> that is. That is literally such- Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So every time, you know, what we found out was every time we flew for an away game, I- I was getting sick and um, it was the pressure, air pressure change. Um, part of my tumor wow. in my brain was actually partially liquid. Um, it was expanding with the air pressure of the flight oh and expanding its kind of size within my brain and, and kind of throwing my balance off, um, giving me headaches, all these kind of weird issues that you just wouldn't expect for you know somebody at 22 years old. And what, so- What did you think? I thought I had food poisoning. I thought, yeah, so because it would happen because our schedule, we land right. you know, in whatever city we're in on a, a Thursday evening or a Friday evening, and we go to dinner and we'd eat. And then by the time dinner would set in, it was like, oh, like, I'm not feeling well again. I must have not eaten something or I must have eaten something not what right. And the challenge was is that as we got further into the season, more symptoms started to present, right? I was starting right. to have headaches regularly i was starting to have trouble with my eyesight i started to walk into practice and the light seemed really bright and so all of these kind of things where you're sitting there going man like the world around me seems different you know the the lights seem brighter and things were harder to to read on the on the board um all these kind of weird symptoms and I'd have headaches, lay down before practice, and I'd have a headache until I got up and got moving. And, and what we were learning was that when I was laying down, either when I slept at night or took a nap during the day, my spinal fluid was going into my head as it does for any normal person when they do that. The challenge was I had a, a large tumor in my head and it was causing my brain to be so, and my body to be so off kilter because it was just so full. And so it was causing all these weird symptoms. And so through all of that, I I managed somehow to play my entire season. Uh, my senior year, I finished, I think, in the top 10 in pretty much every category oh my God. Uh, as a punter. And um, you're 21. You're 21. Yeah. You said you're you're diagnosed and then you like turn 22. 21, yeah. you're probably like just blowing every. We had this conversation with Matthew Zachary with a different cancer diagnosed at the same age in college yeah. away from home. And you're not thinking yeah. cancer. No, yeah. you're just like something's wrong with me, but I got to push through. Yes, oh exactly that. God. Yeah. And so it was that kind of that that stubborn attitude of probably most 21 year old boys and then throw on top of the fact that I was playing football at a division yeah. one program and you just walk around feeling invincible and that um, you can just shrug this off and on to the next thing I have practice to get to I have class to get to I have a game to play all of that was the priority it was never you mm -hmm. know I need to take time and figure out what's why I don't feel right and of course, um, 21, you're invincible. That was the word yeah. that came to my mind. You're invincible. 21 and an athlete and yeah. so taking I'll, care of yourself. So yeah. I want to know a little bit about what treatment looked like for you because you got yeah. diagnosed and then But I'm wait, sure... did your mom, like how did you even end up going to the doctor? Yeah. Um, I say mom. I shouldn't say mom. I should say yeah, mom or dad um, or caregiver. Or... So I, the day that they, they found the tumor, I was, I was on campus. I was working with 
with the team that the season had just ended. They said that they basically wanted to send me for an MRI to, to, to essentially rule things out at this point. From there, it was got the MRI, uh, got back to the team facility. I met with the team doctors and I walked in to meet with the team doctors and the entire training staffs and there are a handful of my coaches, you know, mm-hmm. just a, a ton of support, which generally meant you had a season ending injury. Right. So I walked in, I saw everybody and I was like, oh, well, this isn't good. Um, I'm sure. And nobody laughed at my little joke and I was like, oh, well, I guess this really isn't good. So what, what's happening? Um, and they told me that I had a large growth in my brain and that I needed to see a specialist first thing in the morning. And so I was like, okay. Um, and I knew how my mom would handle that information. So my default was to call my dad and, and say, this is what's happening. And I called my dad and he said, uh, my dad at the time was, was working night shift. He was on his way into work, had just left, uh, my mom at my aunt's house. And I called him, I said, Hey, they found a, a growth in my brain. Um, I'd see a specialist in the morning and that's about the extent of what I know at this point. And he just couldn't believe it. And he had told me that, um, he had just left my mom at, at my aunt's house because my aunt Chrissy, my mom's youngest sister had been diagnosed with breast cancer earlier that day. Oh um, my God. Yeah. So within the span of about eight hours, um, my mom learned that her youngest sister and youngest child and, and only son had been diagnosed with a, a brain tumor. And so from that point on, um, I Wait, saw- so your, your parents were in Philadelphia, right? And you're yeah. in New York. In I'm in Syracuse. Yeah. So, so I saw the specialist the next day in Syracuse with uh, the team trainer. And he basically said, you know, where are you from? Told him I was from Philadelphia. And he said, it's, you need to go home and, and be with your family and, and get treatment. And so within uh, probably about two and a half hours, three hours of that meeting with the doctor, I was- um, I was flown home to Philadelphia. Parents picked me up at the airport, and uh, from there, went to to find a, a neurosurgeon in Philadelphia, and went to uh, Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Uh, met with the chief of neurosurgery, and about five or six days later, I went in and had a craniotomy um, on December fourteenth, two thousand and ten. Uh, six days later, came out, got the the diagnosis, and pretty much from that point on, it was you know once I got the cancer diagnosis, it was like, well, what what's going to happen? And nobody nobody told me you know what the journey was going to be like. I remember for a, a good period of time that I went to bed every night just not expecting to wake up the next morning because I I just didn't know what what to expect. And were you at home? I was, I was at home, um, which was tough. I was in a, in my childhood bedroom, you know, sitting there alone, just trying to figure out what was going to happen. And nobody at that time could give me an answer. And what I had come to realize is that, um, brain cancer is oftentimes a, a long and, and brutal battle. And so that's when I kind of, I learned what my treatment resume would be. And I had about three and a half weeks, about four weeks to recover from the surgery itself before my treatment started. Um, the treatment was a chemo, an oral chemotherapy uh, called temozolomide or temidar. Um, and I was going to take that every single day for six and a half weeks. And then for six and a half weeks, Monday through Friday, I would go down to Philadelphia and receive full radiation of my brain. And over the course of that period of time, I went from probably 205, 210 pounds of pretty much pure muscle to 165-ish pounds. Um, and, you know, I'm six foot three, so I was pretty, yeah. pretty thin. And a lot of it was just pure fear and just not knowing what the future held and being afraid to afraid to eat, afraid to do anything. And so, um, and radiation, you don't, you feel like, yeah, you feel horrible. Yeah. The, the crazy thing was, is that I went through the first two weeks and was a little tired, but I had still had all my hair 
And so, you know, I'm in there. I was like, oh, well, I must be the one person that doesn't lose their hair when they have full brain radiation. And so I asked the, uh, I asked the radiologist and they're like, well, you know, it's, it's usually between like weeks two and three where this happens. And I was like, all right. And I remember no joke. The next day I woke up and it looked like somebody had shaved a golden retriever on my pillow. And I was like, what is happening? And then I realized my, my hair was all falling out and I went into the bathroom and I just, you know, put my hand and it just in clumps fell right out in my hand. And it was incredibly surreal experience to have because weeks ago I was playing division one football and now I'm standing in front of a mirror, like men watching all my hair fall out. And so it was a, a wild experience. And so I went through the first round of, of chemo and radiation um, f- through that month and a half, and then went to go get a, basically a checkup scan. Um, so, you know, three weeks following that, the doctor said, Hey, like you're, you're still within two and a half months of having major brain surgery. You just had radiation and chemotherapy. Our expectation is that this MRI is not going to be particularly pretty your your brain's been through a lot and so like trying to temper expectations you know you know it's probably just going to be very irritated and and you know we're not going to have a great read on a lot of things said okay so go to get that mri and that was um march of 2011 the very end of march 2011 i would say like the 29th of march and um we go down to the hospital as we normally did in philadelphia go had the mri the day prior and and go to meet the doctor and for for me it was one of those surreal moments that we go through check in we're sitting in the waiting room and my doctor comes out and he's like hey i need to see you and get grabs everybody and we find the closest computer in the hallway we didn't even make it to an exam room and he said um i need you to see your your mri results he said they're it's unbelievable and he pulls up the side by side and he said i i don't know what happened here i don't know if it's a miracle but it's pretty close and pulled up my side by side and there was no visible signs of cancer in my brain after wow, that's crazy uh, yeah it was that's it crazy. was nice there was no real irritation there was a little bit of scar tissue but that was that was it and uh he was like this is this is awesome this is you can't have a better scan than this and so i was like all right well what does that mean he said well there's no visible signs of cancer but we can't always see what's there and so you still have uh you still have to go through chemotherapy and so uh, he said at that time you know i'm not really sure what the the regimen's going to be but we're going to talk to the chemo oncologist and we'll we'll get that sorted out and so by April, uh, mid-April, I had kind of met with the doctor and they discussed the plan of attack was that I was young, I was healthy uh, otherwise, and they were going to do everything that they could to, to ensure that this never came back. And so I went through a full year of chemotherapy um, from that date. There were 28-day cycles, 23 days of basically rest and recovery, five days of chemotherapy. And the biggest challenge for me was the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And yeah. so I, I would go through these these 28 day cycles and I would spend three weeks, the better part of three weeks, eating, working out, lifting, doing everything that I could, knowing that I had five days of chemo. The first three days wouldn't be bad, but day four, day five, then day six, day seven, day eight, after chemo was over, I would lose. 15 pounds, be really unable to eat, be nauseous, and pretty much just not really able to do anything. And that process repeated itself every month for a year. Okay, but that's not insanity. That's you persevering yeah, and pushing yeah. through. So I get what you're saying. Yeah, you're trying yeah. to say, because I understand when you get chemo, it just knocks you down right again. I had the same <laughs> thing where I would try to work out as well. But I think yeah. it gives you a purpose too. It's not yeah. just insanity. It's like, it's, it makes you keep going. So you have like, yeah, you are in, yeah, you're, yeah, you have to, 
that yeah, you'll go crazy. You'll go insane if you don't do that. I think. And probably every yeah. time you did that, yeah. building yourself up made you stronger. I mean, I know that that was yeah. the same thing with Michael yeah. fighting everything he went through, being an athlete. Probably yeah. saved him. I'm sure that saved you. You know, oh, yeah. being so in shape and having that mindset, that mindset that you had. Oh my yeah. God. How, well, you can keep talking, but how is your family dealing with this and your friends? Because you were in the like mid semester, well, yeah. I guess senior year, kind of mid year. Yeah. Yep. And you left and you were at home. There's like so many layers to this mentally, not just physically, but we always talk about the mm. mental part is so important. Yeah, it was, um, I think as most young adult diagnoses go, they're just, they happen at a very weird time in your life. And I was two classes, six credits short of finishing my degree. And I had left, strategically left those two classes. They were supposed to be done online so that I could go and train for football. And so I would have my housing on campus and I would have my six final credits that I needed to complete. And I could go live in Florida or Arizona or California and, and train and, and do my schoolwork and graduate on time. And so all of a sudden I, let alone the two classes that I had left, I didn't even really have a chance to finish the, the fall semester, right? All of this right. happened and we have two weeks left of class and my professor's Finals like, you have a final. And I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm having brain surgery tomorrow. <laughs> and so everybody was, all my professors were fantastic of at course. Syracuse and, and, you know, love that university and everything it's done for me. The challenge was that I, I did, I moved back home and I should have had a spring semester where I was, you know, on campus or training and I was, I was just at home. And so at this time in my life where I was sick, I was the most isolated that I ever had been. All my friends were still at college. My girlfriend at the time, still at college. Um, my parents were working full-time job to try and keep things moving along. And so it was a, an immense uh, mental and emotional challenge to, to navigate. And I feel like my friends at that time, they didn't really even have a grasp of what was happening. And, you know, social media wasn't nearly as, as prevalent then. And even sending like picture messages wasn't as, as simple as it is now. And so they had no real understanding of like what my diagnosis was or, or how severe it was or what my brain scans looked like at the time. And so it was a very weird, a weird time that like you just, you had to, to figure it out. And that's what I think taught me so much about myself was like, hey, you just have to keep going. Like nobody's going to tell you to do these things. It is literally the the discipline and desire to get better that is like has to come from within because I'm sure you guys know, like it's not easy getting to treatment every day. It's not like, oh, oh let me go take my chemotherapy pills every morning. You want to get better, but it's also these things that kind of destroy you from the inside out. And so- yeah the the mental fortitude that it creates is something that i i feel like i'm glad i i went through it when i did and it's made a lot of other things that i've faced in my life a lot easier because i have the perspective of of what you know the difficult things are and i think that's been true for my family as well my mother is one of the, the most incredibly resilient people that i've ever met in my entire life and she's a yeah, she's an inspiration uh, for me every day. And I think to see them, both my parents and my sister and my wife now, knowing what they went through and they were just as much a part of it as, as I was. And in some ways, I, I feel like I was the lucky one because it was me. It was my body. I had some sense of at least control or acceptance of such thing um where it was i was glad i was dealing with it and they weren't you did know, you ever wasn't... go to therapy by any chance what's that did you go to therapy oh yeah um so... <laughs> oh, yeah. i wanted to ask you about that because yeah, i went yeah. to therapy when i was first diagnosed and that helped me a lot too i did not go to therapy until about five years ago so about okay. eight okay. years after my diagnosis and this is one of one of my chief complaints is that nobody at any point told me that, hey, 
you might deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. You might deal with some social and emotional anxiety and all of these things that happened because of my diagnosis. I went from basically being told that um, my life was finite, that there was a clock ticking, that I was going to die. It was just a matter of how many weeks or months it was going to be from the time of my diagnosis to all of a sudden, like, hey, you have a clean MRI. Like, you're you're going to, we'll see how it goes, but, you know, this is good. And for the first five years of that journey, you're just waiting for the shoe to drop. And yeah, I, I could not at any point even fathom my life past a certain age. And I remember like when I was diagnosed, I was praying. I was like, hey, if I could turn 30, like that'd be awesome. Like give me, give me eight more years, give me seven more years and like trying to negotiate. <laughs> I, feel, I feel that same way. I, yeah. And JJ, yeah. the, 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 the same thing. He was like, let it's me just make thing. it to 30. He's now yeah. about to turn 36 and he's. That's awesome. Yeah. I, yeah, you literally went from, and I'm sure, you know, if you're almost a professional football player, that means the training that went into it. So this was your life. Yeah. We always say it flips on a dime when you're diagnosed with cancer, but literally like for you, I cannot even imagine that the way you flip from this whole team mentality, first of all, for training every day, and then everything just like taken from you, which is what cancer does, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. And you're still trying to work out then not knowing if you're going to live weeks or months. I can't believe you didn't have a therapist all that time. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, I don't know how you did it. And it's yeah, crazy it, to me. Everything that would, you've accomplished like yeah. today after this, you know, 12 years later. And I want to kind of hear the story about yeah. how you got to creating uplifting athletes and what you did after your cancer diagnosis. Because once you were done with treatment, what was your next step? Like, did you want to go back to football? Like, what were you thinking when you finished treatment and how did you get to where you are today? So after I, I finished treatment and even going through treatment, my goal was to to, to play football. And yeah, sure. um, I had and really more than wanting to play football was that I wanted to get to a point where I felt personally that I had gotten back to being as good or better than what I was when I was in college. I did not want my diagnosis to define me. I didn't want my diagnosis to choose when my career was over. Yeah. I wanted to make those decisions. So I spent about two years after my senior year trying to, to play football and a year of which I was going through treatment, but the second year um, wow. was out. And it's just something I worked really hard at. And I went and I tried out for probably about a dozen NFL teams. And the challenge with being a punter is that there's only 32 jobs in the world for what you yes. want to do. And yes. every job is filled the year prior. So it's not only being good enough, it's the opportunity and the timing. And for me, I had gotten to these these workouts and I would have great workouts and, you know, they just would say, hey, like, did great. We'll, we'll keep you in mind if somebody gets hurt or, you know, we need somebody. But for right now, like, you know, we'll, we'll put you back on, on the list and we'll give you a call if we need anything. And so that was pretty much it. It was like going through that process. And then there was one final workout in Arizona that I basically had just said, regardless of how this goes, good or bad, like I'm done after this. Like I, I had spent all this time and I was just ready. And I started to get kind of that itch for like, what is next for me? And so I went did the workout, had a good workout, talked to a couple teams and pretty much said, like, if somebody calls me and offers me a job, I'll take it. But other than that, I'm going to start to to move on and, and figure out what else I wanted to do. I, I had really went into this whole process thinking that I had to solve brain cancer by kicking a football and that the only way that I'd be able to redeem myself or my story was to go play professionally. And Somewhere along the way, I, I realized that that wasn't the case. And 
for the majority of that two years, I really wasn't enjoying myself. Like I wasn't having fun playing football. I was putting so much pressure on myself because I I wanted to, for all the people that had been diagnosed with, with brain cancer, for all the people that were dealing with a, a cancer diagnosis, I wanted to show that this could be done. And somewhere along the lines uh, of going through this day in, day out, I, I realized that I could do far more than just punt a football. And that's when my teammates started the Syracuse chapter of uplifting athletes in my honor in 2012. It gave me something to to hang on to. And so I would go back to Syracuse and I would talk to the team and I'd, I'd talk in the community and we'd raise money for the mission of uplifting athletes. And it was just, it was amazing. And I went and got a couple of jobs. I was doing sales, doing this, doing that, and nothing felt any bit fulfilling except when I would go and get to do something with uplifting athletes. And so I reached out to the founder of uplifting athletes um, in 2016, and I said, "Hey, is there any chance I could, you know, join the organization full time?" At the time, uplifting athletes had one full time employee. I was the second full time employee. Yeah, it's, um, it was still small. Super small. So I joined the organization full-time in 2016. And for the first year uh, working there, I really just just tried to learn. I, I had never really worked in nonprofit before. I didn't really you know, understand how we could leverage what was unique about uplifting athletes to have an impact on the community, the rare disease community that we serve. And so I, I just kind of absorbed. I learned. I went to meetings, conferences, talked to people, and just really wanted to, to learn what what can we do as an organization to, to make your lives better? And I learned a lot. And uh, a couple of years later, I was promoted to the executive director role of Uplifting Athletes. Woohoo! Um, <laughs> so they, they uh, entrusted me and my colleague, Brett, with the leadership of the organization. And from there, we just realized that we have an incredible platform. The rare disease community is an incredible group of people, and we can leverage this platform of sports to generate conversation around rare disease, around research, around medical research. And we really wanted to reimagine the way that we funded medical research. And so in August of 2018, we launched this program called the Young Investigator Draft. It is modeled after the NFL draft, but instead of drafting the top athletes in the country, we draft and fund the top researchers from the rare disease community. And I so I love this. That's so cool. <laughs> I love this so much. <laughs> it's been um it's been an awesome, awesome program, one that is near and dear to my heart. It is something that we we launched in 2018, and I didn't have a whole lot of an idea of what I was doing at the time, but it's gotten better each year, and the impact has, has been remarkable. Through that program, we've been able to partner with 33 disease-specific patient advocacy organizations in the rare disease space. So these, these organizations- 33 is a lot. Yeah, it's a lot of different a lot. ones. Uh, collaboration is very important to me. Think about us as an organization. We're supposed to represent the more than 10,000 different rare diseases. We can't be an expert on all 10,000 rare diseases, but what we can do is find the partners who are experts in those specific diseases. They nominate researchers in their disease state that are doing great work, early stage research, and we partner with them to, to fund grants for those researchers. And since we launched that program, we've been able to fund 44 different researchers and over $820,000 in research grants. Uh, for rare disease research. And so next year, our next young investigator draft in February of 2024, we'll go over a million dollars in, in research grants funded. Wow. Um, yes. That's yeah. Awesome. That's, so it's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, I was just listening to you talk and thinking how <laughs> you had this dream to be, like you said, to be a punter, but you <laughs> are just touching the uh, amount of lives that you're touching where that actually led you. Like you did go along that path, but then it led you to this, which led you to the chapter of uplifting. So can you explain the connection of athletes? So they're raising awareness. Is that basically yeah. the way it works? Is the athletic connection is that the athletes are raising awareness to the foundation to raise money for the grants, for the research? Yep. And so okay. what we say is we basically live at the intersection of sports and rare disease. Um, not all of the athletes that we work with have rare diseases right. or have a direct connection to the cause. Really what we're doing is providing the platform for those athletes to do what they're already doing to support specifically the mission of uplifting athletes in the rare disease community. And so 
it's been really amazing. We've grown the number of collegiate chapters that we work with. We have on over 33 different campuses and universities across the country. Okay. Schools like Penn State and Syracuse and, wow. and uh, Notre Dame and Florida State and Clemson. Um, big, and really, the big we, ones. Yeah, we got a yeah. lot of big schools that work with. And, and really the idea and why we believe this this platform of sports is so important is that if you think about the rare disease community specifically is so few people really understand what a rare disease is or how big the rare disease community is. There's over 10,000 different rare diseases. Uh, they impact one in 10 Americans. So there's over 30 million people living in the United States with a rare disease. One and, in 10? Yeah. And so the, 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 the really big challenge that we have is of those 10,000 rare diseases, 95% of people do not have an FDA approved treatment. I was one of the lucky 5% that had access to an FDA approved right. treatment. And so we have over 27 million people that have a rare disease and have no access to a treatment. And so that's really what we're trying to to change. And the reason the athletes are such uh, an important role in all of this is that they have the ability to reach outside of the rare disease community, right. bring the, the awareness and the support uh, that is required. It's not just the people that are diagnosed or that are living with a rare disease that are going to be the ones that are able to single-handedly make all of this progress. We need the collaboration. We need that groundswell of support. And I think that's really what is, is so unique about uplifting athletes in the way that we approach all of this is that we are able to leverage a national audience um, in Major League Baseball, in in the NFL, to bring attention to to the cause and to bring much needed resources, time, attention, money uh, to to the rare disease cause. And so, it's been incredible uh, to see. And you know, things like the Young Investigator Draft—they are the seed grants that pave the path for research to happen. And one of my my favorite kind of antidotes, and I'll I'll try to to tell it quickly, is that. <laughs> Through the Young Investigator Draft, we've we funded all of this research, and these early stage researchers, it, it is often taken decades to bring a new therapy to market, a de decades and, and hundreds of millions of dollars in research, but we need to start. We, we can't be at step 10 if we don't take step one. I knew this was an important program. I knew it was you know something that we needed to do, but I, I didn't have I didn't have the case study for for why it was so important. Uh, as I was getting ready for the draft this year, I was curious about uh, temozolomide or temodar, the, the chemotherapy that I took. It is still today the first line treatment for people diagnosed with primary brain tumors. And so I found uh, the gentleman who is the founder and, and the lead researcher for the development of, of temozolomide, and his name is Dr. Malcolm Stevens. Uh, Dr. Stevens is, is 85 years old. He still lives in Nottingham, England, where he still works doing research at the University of, University of Nottingham. Wow. I sent him an email and I said, Dr. Stevens, you know, my name's Rob. This is our Young Investigator Draft Program. I want to thank you for all that you've done and and thank you for, for saving my life and allowing me to be here to do all this work. I received a, an email about a week and a half later from Dr. Stevens and uh, to this day, it was probably the coolest email I've ever received. And, Seriously. Yeah. He said, so great to hear from you. Thank you for sharing uh, your story with me. He said, I, I'd love to to share with you how I developed temozolomide, that chemotherapy that you took. And he said that um, in early 1980, he received a research grant from a small nonprofit that gave him an opportunity, a seed grant to pursue his research. With that seed grant, he hired a research assistant whose name also happened to be Rob. And uh, in April of 1980, they first first synthesized, uh, synthesized temozolomide um, in Birmingham, England. From that day, it took 27 years for that chemotherapy to be wow. FDA approved. And it was approved in February 2007, and uh, 36 months later, I was diagnosed, and that chemotherapy saved my life. And so when we talk about the importance of funding this research, my message to those researchers is that my, my hope for you is that you take this research grant and you're able to create what, from it something that, that helps people within the disease state in which you're researching, and even more hope that... Um, you have the opportunity decades from now to to meet the people whose lives mm -hmm. you've changed and you've saved. And so that's why we continue to do what we do. It's why we believe in funding early stage research. We believe in, in investing 
in these researchers who are willing to take on these challenging tasks of of researching some of the most rare and sometimes complex diseases that we have, but are doing it um, with the hope of not only being able to help people with those specific diagnoses, but one of the beautiful things about rare disease research is that as we do more of it, we understand the body better and we're able to right. take those learnings and implement for them for not only other other rare conditions, but for, for common illnesses as well. So it's something that's in, incredibly important and something that um, we as an organization are, are continuously committed uh, to pursuing. I love that so much. I do too. I mean, th this whole conversation so far, it's been like so informative and so real and raw. I'm just, we're so inspired by you, everything you're doing. And I also just love Michael shares this perspective. I've heard him say it and not everyone can say it, but how what you went through has kind of become a gift. Yeah. And I'm just like thinking of all, I know I said it before, but all the lives that you have touched. Yeah. I agree with you. The seed grants, it's like, in, it's like investing in our children. Yeah. You know, you're investing yeah. in the yeah. beginning stage because it has to start somewhere. Yeah. You know, everyone that gets upset about the multi-billion dollar businesses of pharmaceuticals <laughs> or whatever, but you have to start with that idea and you guys are funding that. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. And we, wow. I love it. We have had a pretty serious conversation so far, but <laughs> we want to end with a few fun. We have things. some really fun questions we want to ask you. So these, about you, yeah, okay. about you, just so the audience can get to know you better, and we can sure. end on like a, a funny note. Cause it's been a pretty serious and <laughs> real conversation. Yeah. <gasps> but I love it. But I love it. Like I could literally, we could talk yeah. for another hour or two. But I think we have yeah. to. <laughs> Okay, so who is the one person in the world, alive or dead, who's had the most impact on you in your life? Oh, that's fun, but sort of fun. Like the one person oh, that's man. had the most, that's, gosh, that's hard. Because you yeah. just talked about this guy, the doctor. You <laughs> talked about your mom, know, you talked about I your know. dad, and you're married. Gosh, you better not leave your wife yeah, behind. I know. Um, hmm. Honestly, I, I'm going to cheat. I, my parents are, are okay. the people that have yeah, had the biggest impact. I They raised me. They are... Um, incredible people, their, their work ethic, um, their kindness, generosity are all things that I have, uh, thankfully had passed down to me. And so, um, I have an immense amount of appreciation for my parents and what oh. they've done to, to show me the way. Wait, I have to go back to serious. Are you still, I'm imagining you still get scans. How does yes. that work for you now? Is it like a once a year, once a six months? Is it? I go every four months. Okay, um, every so four. yeah, so just, it's kind of like almost a superstition thing with my doctors and I, we've, we've gotten to this cadence where, you know, I, I go and it's better to be, to be on the safe side of things yeah. and um, we make it work. So yeah, that okay. was, it's every four months doing good next one's in october so we got a couple months still okay i didn't mean to get serious no, sorry yeah, I, I, but i just I, I was like let me just ask this question because your cancer i looked it up i yeah. i saw a lot of the information and i was just yeah. wondering but we're so happy you're in remission and people that aren't watching this will be on youtube if people are just listening like you just have to like look up what rob looks like because he just <laughs> looks like an nfl athlete beautiful yeah. gorgeous all right so superpower you wish you had if you could have any superpower uh flying flying <gasps> i like That's it a, michael i want to ask michael that question michael what would yours be <laughs> my superpower <sighs> i just I put know. him on the spot <laughs> my superpower would be to be healthy but if that was already like a given with yes, the superpower i would have teleportation so i can go Ooh, anywhere that's a go. really good one i mean flying you can kind of go anywhere too but teleportation i get there like a second yeah yeah i like that but that's flying good. like you kind of look like superman like i can totally see you in the, <laughs> yeah. like, the outfit You're and the cape and like you yeah. have that look i can see that yeah, i can see it too okay that's funny. how would your i was gonna say how do your friends describe you but i'm gonna go what how would your wife describe you oh gosh <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure how you describe it. I'm not sure which words you would use. I don't know. We, we get along really well. I feel like I married my, my best friend, which is an um, awesome thing. And so she would probably just think that I joke around too much sometimes. And good. Then, uh, That's a good quality. Probably get worried about things that I don't need to be worried about. 
Yeah, I feel that. I joke around and I worry about things I don't need to worry about either. So yeah. I definitely relate to that. Yes. Okay. Um, Dude, I have movie? a question. Okay. Oh, yeah. I have a question for you guys. Do you guys okay. have? And I'll I'll answer mine first. But yeah. Do you, Do you have an unpopular opinion that you want to share? So this was an icebreaker that somebody did for me okay. at a, at one of our me- meetings, and I was like, I was like, what? It's like, what are you about to say? And he said Arby's was the best fast food that he's ever had. but so my my unpopular opinion which is very unpopular is that chocolate and peanut butter are not a good mix (laughs) no i i relate to that i can understand that he doesn't like chocolate and peanut butter either i you're the second person that i have found that they don't fit together no no i agree with you i love strawberries and chocolate pretzels and chocolate yeah peanut butter and chocolate and like just to make sure I'm not crazy, every couple of years I'll try like a Reese's and I'll just be like, no, nah, this still that good. is so funny. Yeah. Do you have do you have one? Unpopular opinion. I don't know. Like, <laughs> that's a really hard question, but that's a good one. Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down and it's a, it's a fun it. uh it's a fun icebreaker. You get a lot of really funny. Oh, my unpopular opinion is I don't like sushi. Oh, see, sushi's great. Yeah. yeah. Like, see, unpopular. That's... He's unpopular because I agree with you. So two like, against one. Like sushi. You yeah. like sushi. I don't like sushi. Yeah. I don't know. That's my unpopular opinion. My unpopular opinion is that I think you should work out seven days a week and don't take a day of rest. <laughs> I don't know. I like that's to run. You, I like to run every rest. single day. I can't rest. Okay. That's yeah. probably an unpopular opinion because you're probably supposed to rest. But yeah. I think that every day I have to do something because it's good for my mind, for my brain. Okay, I, I can respect I'm that. With you. So what's okay. your favorite movie? Oh, man. Um, we have to decipher by genre. Okay. Like drama movie like i love goodwill hunting oh um, we just watched that movie such a good movie favorite the favorite movie uh yeah. like comedy movie old school will like or old school and will ferrell like i can never yeah go yeah, wrong with. I, yeah yeah so there those are my my two we're, on the different ends of the spectrum we're down with those two i don't know if you like to read do you have a favorite book i do so i will um I will plug one of the books that I, I felt like I could most relate to is actually one of the ones behind me. It's called Chasing oh. My Cure. It's uh, Dr. Fagenbaum. Okay. So Dr. Fagenbaum, uh, David is a friend of mine. Uh, he's been an incredible person, but he is somebody that I met probably, uh, gosh, almost 10 years ago now. And he is a physician scientist at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a researcher that he he found the cure for his own disease. Um, he was diagnosed wow. with Castleman's disease. He got into medicine after uh, his mom was diagnosed and, and passed away from brain cancer. He's just the most humble and incredible person. But he wrote a book uh, called Chasing My Cure. And it was one that has inspired me because so many of the stories that he shared, I could relate to. And he is uh, also a former college football player from Georgetown. He went, uh, studied public health at Oxford, and then um, went to the University of Pennsylvania and did a a joint MD, MBA program at Penn and Wharton. So he's very smart. He's an incredible person, though. And he has an incredible story. We're going to read it. Yeah, it's, it's great. I can, I'll send you guys a couple copies. It's, it's awesome. And he's he's a special person that continues to do fantastic work in the community. Well, okay, so we have two more questions before we close this off. So uh, one of the questions is actually a question. So what's one question you wish that we asked you? Asked you? Like one thing you want to say that we didn't ask you. It could be anything. It can be funny. Or, or if there's nothing. Or, or if there's nothing, there's nothing. But there's uh, something. There's probably something. I don't have a question. Like, I think the one like message I message okay Uh, we'll take it yeah i i think gratitude and and kindness are are the two most (gasps) powerful things that that you can have with you every single day and i i believe that in even in the most challenging of situations i i think it is is the default to what is always the best approach never know what another person's going through yeah um and just to always be thankful for for everything that we have um is kind of my 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 way i've i've navigated all of this is just to have an immense amount of gratitude for everything that i have and to try and uh pay forward everything that i've i've received and then just just trying to be kind to to all those around us neighbors friends 
whatever it is. Um, I love that. Those are, you're, those you're are up my, our my alley. things. Yeah. You are up our alley. Gratitude is huge. Yeah. Gratitude and kindness. We have a gratitude text I share with my kids that we send each oh. other our gratitudes. That's awesome. Try to do it every day, but it's really important. Yeah. Okay. This is this is our like has been our signature question lately. And it's it is a little bit more serious. But if you did know, and I'm and you've been there, if you <laughs> knew that today was your last day, what would you do? I, I don't know that I I can answer this because I know like I I truly have built a life for myself that if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, I'd be fine. I, I'm incredibly mm. Thankful for where I am and what I'm doing. I, it's it's the best part of my job is that mm -hmm. every day that I get to come back to work and it is an opportunity to have an impact on the lives of the people that I work with, the community that we serve. And, um, you know, I sit here, been doing this as the, the executive director for five years and I'm incredibly proud of of the things we've accomplished and the things that we've done. And my goal when I started all of this was just to to leave the world in a better place than than when I started. And I feel like I through the work that we're doing through uplifting athletes, I feel like we're we're on our way to doing that. You're um, doing it. You're not on your way. You're doing yes. it. You're doing it. And so for me, there's there's nothing better. I I. I have everything I could have ever dreamed of. I lived longer than I ever thought possible. I I got married and, you know, I have an unbelievable wife and uh, a home and a couple of dogs and, um, you know, everything else is, is just an added bonus. That is the gift of cancer, that perspective yeah. of that you really do try to live. It's not every day, but you try to live every day. Yeah. to its fullest. And I think that is the gift. And you just summed it up so beautifully. Yeah. I mean, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for being on our podcast. This has been an amazing episode. And you're such, such yeah. a beautiful human. Thank you for everything <laughs> yeah. you're doing, thank you. for not giving up, for coming on this podcast and talking with us yeah. and sharing your heart so openly. Thank you. Of course, thank you. Yeah, thank you both so much. It's It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, for us too. All right, Mr. Kramer. This is an official goodbye from your host, Michael, and... Ah, and his mom, Ashley. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening, and we will talk soon. Mwah.